I'd love for you to take the Word of God and turn to Mark chapter number 13 this morning. Mark 13. Failed to announce that we do have a, uh, probably didn't need to announce it, you can probably smell it, <coughs> a uh, fellowship dinner after the service today. Mark 13, beginning in verse 1. Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am he and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up, you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. For whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and call them to be, and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Let's pray. Fathers, we come to the time in worship where your word is proclaimed from this pulpit. We ask that you would give our brother wisdom, clarity of thought, um, Help his throat to clear so that he can speak well. And then, Father, we pray that not only would he speak your word and point us to Christ, but that we would have listening ears, that we would hear and heed the truth of your word, that as we are pointed to Christ, that there would be those who perhaps who do not know him who would be drawn by your spirit to faith in Christ. We ask, Father, that your spirit would rule in all of our hearts so that as we hear, we would honor you and be not only drawn to Christ, but be made more Christ-like as believers, that we would, Lord, follow our Savior and, and, and our our Lord, that we would uh, exalt him in our lives. And so may the word that is preached here not remain here. May it do its transforming work in us so that when the world sees us as we walk from day to day, they will see Christ in us, the hope of glory. And so, Father, we ask that you would take your word and use it for your purposes in every life, to the glory of Jesus Christ, 
our Lord and Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Mark chapter number 13. If you're visiting with us, we have uh, spent the last year to year and a half. I'm in the book of Mark. It's been a blessing just to work verse by verse through it. I mean, this is where we find ourselves. And we found ourselves in this portion of Scripture for about the last three sermons or so. I'm going to preach a couple more, um, if not three or four more, um, out of this text. No doubt it's a controversial text. Um, what we've taken, or my contention has been, that um, we began a portion of Scripture um, that was particularly applicable to the disciples um, that, Christ were spe- that Christ was speaking to. A lot of times this is looked at as a, con- a completely future um, type of ordeal in which the wars and rumors of wars and various other things that um, are to mark um, the coming of Christ um, are completely in the future speaking of the second coming. I've taken a different perspective um, and interpretation that these things were primarily fulfilled in the time between Christ's ascension in 33 AD and finally culminate in uh, 70 AD at the destruction of, of the temple. Tried to lay that out for you. Um, I think some of it may have been heavy at times. I know that it was heavy on me. Um, so we've seeked to slow down in some sense. To not just pour data upon you, although the data is necessary. Um, because what I didn't want to do was offer you an interpretation that wasn't supported and faithful to Scripture. So I've sought to do that. Um, but at the same time, I don't want to do that to the, uh, and forsake what I believe to be um, the primary purpose of this text. And I explained that the very first um, week that we began preaching from this text. That I believe that the primary purpose of this prophetic passage is particularly ethical or moral. That God doesn't simply tell us things to tell us things. Um, he doesn't simply give us prophecy in the future for the sake of satisfying you, yours, and my curiosity. It seems to me that Christ's great thrust in this portion of Scripture is not so that you can gauge His coming or know where to pinpoint Him on a prophetic map, but that in the midst of the encroaching hostility of a wicked and a perverse age, that the hearers and the readers, particularly Christians, would know how to carry themselves um, in that time and that they would ultimately persevere unto the end. And that's going to be our text that we're going to focus in on today and probably next week as well. It's that verse 13. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. I believe that this is the thrust of the passage. I believe that um, God reveals to them, Christ reveals to them those things which must come to pass so that when they arrive, um, that they would push through, that they would endure, that they would persevere. And this phrase, but he who endures to the end, um, has somewhat troubled me over the past couple of weeks. Um, the end, um, one question that arises is, what is the end being spoken of here? I mean, I've tried to offer you what my interpretation of that end would be, the end of the old covenant age, um, which would be formally uh, manifested in the destruction of the temple and um, and the new covenant, of course, coming in. There's somewhat of an overlap there. But even at that, it wasn't that that somewhat puzzled me. Because regardless of what the end means, um, he it, because regardless of the end, it says, he who endures to the end shall be saved. Now, does it then mean that he who doesn't will not be saved? 
And what about those who die along the way? Are they saved? Because we know that a great persecution will come upon God's people and many will not make it to the end. If this is speaking of whether it's the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, the end of the time-space continuum in the future, or if it's speaking about the end, meaning death, um, regardless, you know, um, the idea is the same with all. He who endures to the end will be saved. And it seems that to imply that he who doesn't won't be. Does it mean then that those faithful Christians who don't make it to the end won't be saved? Or that all of those who endure to the end regardless of faith will be saved? Because there is a way to make it to the end without endurance and without perseverance. There will be those who make it there by compromise. Will they be saved? In a sense, they will have their lives. But will they be saved? Is he talking here simply about life as physical or life as spiritual? These are questions that must be answered. I believe what he's talking about here is the essential nature nature of the perseverance of the saints or the people of God. This phrase comes on the heels of the persecution to come for the sake of the gospel. This persecution will come from civil authorities. It will come from religious authorities, from Jewish authorities. It will come from within the church. It says that you will be forsaken in this text. And it will even come within probably the most intimate economy that God has ordained in this life. And that is within the own family. Brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers will forsake you. That's what we just read. In verse 13, you will be hated by all men for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. That's the idea. That's the context. That those that make it to the end, enduring for His namesake, we will be saved. Man, it's a prom- what a promise. What a word for the saints. What a word and a promise because they would need it in the coming years and decades. Why? Because these things would become a reality to them. Yeah, this would be more than theoretical. This would be more than uh, newspaper news. This would be more than we hear about persecution that's going on in Myanmar and, and Afghanistan. They would be in Myanmar and they would be in Afghanistan. They would be in the thick of the battle. They would be hated for His name's sake. They would be betrayed by all and they would be seemingly left there alone to cling to one another and to cling to their Christ. They would literally be hated, they would be shunned, they would be beaten, they would be left for dead, they would be forsaken of friends and family. Why? Simply for His namesake. And what He's doing in this verse is contrasting those that endure with uh, simply those that don't. In other words, there is a sense in which He says, there will be a group of people who claim to follow Me and they won't endure. They won't be saved. Um, They won't endure. And they won't be saved. Does that bother you? It bothers me sometimes. Does that bring any sense of weight upon our souls? You may say, oh no, no, of course not. I'm saved, you know. I know I'm saved, right? Once saved, always saved. I'm good, right? I mean, we believe in the perseverance of the saints here, right? You know that a person can't lose their salvation. What is there to worry about? Well, we should ask ourselves this morning, sure, do we understand the Gospel and have we been born again by the Spirit? But but, but another equally important question that I think that we should ask ourselves this morning is in relationship to that, am I persevering? Am I enduring? Am I pressing on? Am I running the race? Am I fighting the good fight? 
Um, because a person, because I'm going to contend that the scriptures do not um, uh, do not um, teach that a person who is simply saved with a profession of faith and does not persevere will not be saved in the end. Um, what we have, what we have, is a tendency to do with a single truth is to overemphasize it and blow it out of proportion and err on the extreme. And what I mean by that is that there are people out there today that believe and teach that a one-time profession of faith was made by a person, that that person is eternally secure. I heard a quote just this week by a well-known Baptist. If I named, if, if I named his name, he's a well-known writer in a large church. Um, every one of you would know him. And in a book on eternal security, quote, we can quote him saying, and I'm paraphrasing now, um, that a person could potentially uh, make a profession of faith, become an atheist, die as an atheist, and still have eternal life. Um, well, what do they lose then? The question would be reward is what he argues. That the person simply loses their reward in the coming eternal age. Because of this, there are some denominations that believe it's dangerous to tell a person that once they're saved, they can never be lost. And I know from personal experience with family members that this is a fear um, because they believe that it will give a people a license to sin. Right? If you have eternal security, then you can carry on any way that you want, they argue, and you have a license to sin regardless, even if you become an atheist, um, you can still be saved. This is being taught in Baptist circles, as well as other denominations. Some denominations um, hate the doctrine so much, though, that they go to the other extreme. They say, that can't be true, and because it's not. So the only other option seems to be to conclude that that person um, had salvation and then they lost it. So to push people on to persevere, they use the fear of losing their salvation. Why? Because they believe texts like these are for Christians. Do we? What about texts like Hebrews 3.12? Beware, brethren, it says, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you will hear my voice, do not harden in your hearts as in the rebellion. For who having heard rebelled? Indeed, was not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom has he been angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter into his rest? But to those who did not obey. So, we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief in the text. Who's that exhortation to? Some would say, not to me, I'm saved. <laughs> it seems to be to you. It seems to be to the Hebrew Christians. It seems to be to those Jewish converts who had came to Christ and they're struggling with how to move from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. Therefore, they hang on to a lot of the, 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 the regalia and the religious practice and Paul is encouraged, or I think it's Paul, we can argue about that later, but the writer of Hebrews is arguing that, that they need to leave all of that behind, but throughout it, there's multiple exhortations to them to stay steadfast, to hold firm to the faith, and not fall to the deceitfulness of sin, and be hardened in unbelief. But I thought I was saved, I thought I, that couldn't happen to me. Can it? Who's it to? It's to you. The idea is that there are among us, and among the people of God throughout the ages, that there may be a group of people that appear to have an outward sense of righteousness, yet do not believe, because they are deceived by sin, which has hardened their hearts. What's the illustration? 
Joshua and Caleb in the book of Numbers. Twelve spies go up and they spy out the promised land. Two of them come back with a, a positive report. I'm saying we need to take the land. And ten come back with a negative report saying we're not taking the land. Yeah, the enemies are too great. They're too strong. And they didn't receive the good report. The text says that the ten gave an evil report of unbelief. That's what the book of the writer of Hebrews is referencing. Or uh, They won't believe. Therefore, they won't move. They won't run. They won't fight. They won't believe the promises of God. They won't believe God. That's essentially the, 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 the crux of the matter. In Numbers 13, the Lord spoke to Moses as a result of that. And he said, quote, Send me uh, to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the, the, the children of Israel. In the next chapter, the Israelites are lamenting that after they left Egypt, some wanted to die and some wanted to go back into slavery. Joshua pleads with them. The Lord is with us. The Lord promised us in some sense, he's saying. Do not fear them. Verse 10 says that all said to, to stone them with stones. That's the idea. They go in, they're believing the promises of God. They come back and they say, yeah, I mean, they're big, but God's bigger. You know, we can take this thing. And 10 say, say no, no. Joshua and Caleb are pushing them to go. And the, and the entire congregation of the children of Israel want to stone them with stones. And they verbalize it. Let's stone these guys who think that they're, you know, who, who desire to kill us in, in Canaan. They'd rather go back and die in Egypt or they would rather go back and be under slavery than to believe God. And that's exactly the problem. God came to Moses in the tabernacle in that chapter 14 and says, how long will these people reject me? They're not rejecting Joshua. They're not rejecting Caleb. They're not rejecting Moses. Um, God himself comes to Moses and says, how long will they reject me? And how long will they not believe me? He says, so that the entire generation um, dies in the wilderness. Joshua and Caleb are the only ones who pass on through into the promised land. The writer of Hebrews is arguing that just because you are among the church, carrying your Bible, singing the songs, bowing our heads, saying amens, doesn't necessarily mean that we have the heart of faith or a heart of faith. The picture of an evil heart of unbelief in the Scriptures is not usually this blatant, flagrant, or, or, or in-your-face type of unbelief. Much of the time, it's much more subtle than that. And you know that, right? I know that. The enemy of the Bible is not so much the atheist um, who, who, who clearly opposes God as it is the apostate. I mean, the apostate is not always the one who denies God outright, although some do but also the ones who deny God with an evil heart of unbelief. You know that the Bible often portrays two types of people, particularly in the New Testament, and it uses the Old Testament to illustrate that very point. That there's two types of people, those that believe and those that don't. And the crazy thing is, is that they often look exactly the same. They look like a Judas among the twelve. They look like Matthew 7, Lord, Lord, I preached in your name. I cast out demons in your name. And he says to them, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. It looks like a narrow gate in a broad way. In the narrow, great, uh, the narrow way, you have to press into the kingdom, uh, the gospel writer says. It looks like a house being built. The houses look identical um, above ground, but one is built upon a rock and one is built upon sand. Matthew 24, 9 says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. That's the idea. But you men, you persevere. You run the course. 
You don't believe the false prophets or the, the false messiahs. The Bible is replete with examples of those that were within the family of God, operating within that family that fell away, and it's not monolithic. You know, you read your New Testament, what are you going to find? That I think this is what he's dealing with in Mark and Matthew and Luke. What he's dealing with is, is that, that he says time and time again that, 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 that Matthew, I think it's chapter 24 and verse number 11, he says that there will be many that fall away. Do not be misled. Do not be deceived. There will be many who are, and many will fall away. You don't fall away. That the church is going to be marked by those um, who are, are faithful, but the mark, it's also going to be marked by those who are unfaithful. And this is what the Scripture teaches, that there will be those who are within the family of God, within the people of God, and along the way, they, we, we lose them. We lose them for different reasons, you know? For moral reasons, for doctrinal reasons, for... Um, persecution for a number of things. Matthew 13, 22, um, you read these words, Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. That sometimes people apostatize or abandon the faith because of moral reasons. Uh, moral, the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, they choke out the word. You know, 2 Timothy 4.10 speaks of a man by the name of Demas. You know what Paul says? He says, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. Only Luke is with me. 1 Timothy 1.18, Paul charges Timothy, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made you, that by them you may war, wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, and which having some, some having rejected, Concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may not learn to blaspheme. You're to fight the good fight. You're to keep the faith and a good conscience in whom some having rejected have shipwrecked their faith. They had some sort of faith at some point. It's some type of external um, application and, 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 and you know, adherence to the people of God, but they're no longer with us. You know, Paul turns them over to Satan, probably church discipline, but for the sake of saving their souls, 1 Corinthians 5. You say, oh, I would never do that. I would never do that. That would never be me. You know, it's amazing that Paul didn't see it coming either. If you were to read Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, you would read that these, these words, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. You would read in Philemon, verse 22, but meanwhile also prepare a guest room for me, for I thrust that through, I thrust, I trust that through your prayers it shall, I shall be granted to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. That there were people within the family of God, within the corporate nature of the church, um, actively engaged in ministry. And Paul in Philemon says that Demas was a co-laborer with him in the gospel. And we find that later in his ministry that Demas had forsaken him um, because of the love of this present world. But not only do they abandon because of moral issues, but often doctrinal issues. Galatians 5.4, You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law, you've fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. As some people get 
lost in doctrinal issues such that they are, uh, Paul says, severed from Christ. You cannot be a Christian and think that you, have, that you can be saved by the works of the law, he argues. We learn in 1 Timothy 3 as well that, that at times, um, that there would come a time in which the, the people of God, even within the, 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 the nature of the church, will give heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. 1 Thessalonians 3.1 says, Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel to establish you and encourage you in the faith. He ends it in, I think, verse number five um, by saying this, I, I sent to know your faith. I want to know your faith. Um, he had a love for the churches. And he said, I want to know how you're doing. Lest by some means the tempter, he says, has tempted you and our labor might be in vain. Paul says, I was, crying, I was crawling out of my skin in anxiety over the well-being of your faith. Because the reality is, as Matthew 13 tells us as well, um, that the devil would love nothing more than to destroy your faith and to steal it from your heart. Um, Matthew 13, 20 also tells us that the pressure of persecution um, will steal the faith of some. But he who received uh, the seed on stony ground... This is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. The pressure of persecution sometimes is enough to reveal um, uh, the, the, the apparent faith of some is not really faith at all. And this doesn't seem to be a big deal for us, but this is huge in the early church. The early church had to deal with Christians who under the pangs of persecution would renounce the faith. Are they Christians or not? The predominant conclusion was that they're, done, they're not. That if they had professed faith, been baptized, and renounced the Lord under persecution, they were considered unconverted. Why? Particularly because of these texts. You're saying, I, I believe that? Not necessarily. I'm just saying that this is something that the churches had to wrestle with throughout the ages. Um, the perseverance of, of the saints. That, that, but even with us, there are sometimes believers that come along and make a profession of faith and are baptized and for different reasons. You know, can't take the pressures of being shunned by a family, the pressure of, of awkwardness at work or this or that, leaving out the faith, thus they abandon the faith altogether. And maybe not altogether, but in a, but in a real practical way as they don't live it out. Um, not only that, this is probably the most applicable one to us. Um, laziness and lack of watchfulness. Hebrews 2.1, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect such so great a salvation? Which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and that was confirmed to us by those who heard Him. He says that there's those that will drift away through laziness and a lack of watchfulness. Some rejected outright because of doctrinal or moral issues and some just slowly drift out of a sense of neglect. I think this is probably the most dangerous for us today in America just because there's lack of such a lack of persecution. This isn't the one who outright repudiates the faith, renounces um, the gospel. They simply neglect it. They neglect their duties, their responsibilities. They fail to give heed to the reading of the Word, to prayer. And, and at first it seems almost unnoticeable. But two years down the road, they wake up and they've abandoned the faith altogether. It's a slow process with little compromise after little compromise until your conscience is dead and your heart is hardened, your faith is null and void, and you wonder where God is at all. 
Um, it reminds me of David out of the Old Testament. You remember him, right? King David. Um, there's an instance in which he's on the run from, the, from, from, from King Saul who was anointed by God. Um, he has the ability to take Saul's life in a cave and he doesn't do it. His men are saying, you've got your chance now. Take his life. Take his life. And uh, he says, I can't do that. Well, I'm not. He's God's anointed and I won't do that. But what he does is he cuts a piece off of a garment and he hangs it there so that Saul would know that he was there. And it says that at that moment, David's conscience smote him. That he sinned against his conscience. You won't find until about 10 to 15 years later, he's up on a rooftop, um, didn't go to war as kings should have. And he looks out and he sees a woman um, and he asks somebody, what's her name? And they say, Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah which should have immediately stopped him in his tracks. Uh, two points. Number one, that he's the wife of Uriah. Number two, that it was Uriah, someone of his most faithful servants. How in the world, I guess the question would be, how in the world does a person go from a thriving faith to a seeming dead conscience? It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen um, in, in a single choice. It happens um, as we drift away from the truth, we drift away from faithfulness, we drift away from the Word day after day. You start at the shore and you don't even know it because you've fallen asleep and before you know it, you're miles from the shore as you wake up in the middle of the night having no clue where you are or what you're doing. You know? That many people abandon the faith because of a lack of laziness and a lack of watchfulness for their own souls. Um, thus Mark 13. I think that's the point. Pressure is coming. Turmoil is about to ramp up you to the point, men, that you can't imagine. It's a particularly peaceful time. Persecution is not on the rise. It's, 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 it's fairly low pieces all around. But listen, there's coming a point where they will hate you. They will persecute you. False teachers will come. There may be a temptation in the midst of all that, men, women, to buckle under pressure, to believe the false reports, to, dis to succumb to the doctrines of demons, to forsake the faith uh, for immoral gain, the riches of the world, to neglect the salvation that God has given you. And he's saying, don't. Don't. He's saying in that moment, you must persevere. And believe that God in the end will save you. Don't be deceived. Don't be misled. You mean, the question may arise, you mean that they could be misled? Well, that seems to be the implication. Matthew 24, many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Many will be led astray, he says. You may be thinking now, does this guy believe that we can lose our salvation? And the answer is no. I believe in the eternal security of the believer as a result of the perseverance of the saints, and I'm convinced uh, to that uh, because of Scripture. That those who, whom Christ died will, secure, will be secure in Him, and He will raise them up at the last day. That those whom are His will persevere. But there is also this stark reality in the New Testament and life of the church that there are those, as John says in 1 John, that went out from us because they were not of us. There are those within the local church, the external family of God, that have on occasion abandoned the faith, but uh, when time grows dark and rough for the Christian, it'll be more than just a mere occasion. Perseverance and persecution is one of the many tests of the true believer. That God keeps His own through persecution. But God also keeps His own by persecution. Note that. That God just doesn't keep His own through persecution. 
He doesn't just preserve them through it. He actually keeps them by it. And we'll get to that in a little bit. God keeps His own. It's upon this reality that the New Testament writers over and over again emphasize, persevere, run, don't look back, be faithful, guard, fight, don't be deceived, don't fall. But you said, I can't fall. I can't lose my salvation, so why should I be concerned? The person who says that doesn't understand salvation. So how do you make sense of those divine threats to God's people as well as those divine promises, right? Those those texts that seem to be speaking to us, I'm saying, don't lose your faith. But at the same time, you have some saying, God will always keep you. How do we make sense of passages like John 6.35 where he says to them, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that I have seen, if you've seen me and do it yet, you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me, I will in no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose none, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. How do you make sense of passages like that and then passages like, like nothing shall separate us from the love of God, yet Hebrews 3, chapter 12, or 3 and verse 12, and many other places that says, says keep running. If not, um, um, you will not be saved. How do we make sense of that? I'm going to argue that if we understand what Christ accomplished in salvation, then we can understand how those two things work together and how both, in fact, contribute to our salvation particularly our perseverance. I'm arguing that not only was your final salvation purchased on Calvary, but so too was your perseverance. Thus, we can have certainty that in the new covenant, those that know Christ truly will truly be preserved. That's what he promises, right? That's what the people of God will be preserved. Like there's a thousand texts that says that, right? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time that there is a certainty of perseverance, that we will be preserved by His grace. So we've seen the possibility of apostasy. Now I want to give you the certainty of perseverance. What is the nature of salvation? Is it simply legal rendering not guilty? Is it simply Christ who promises to save you in a vacuum regardless? Or is is it something more? Is it something more? I'm convinced that not only you have you been saved, but if you are saved, you are being saved, and that one day you will finally be saved. This is the way the Scriptures um, talk about salvation. That God is in this moment, if you have been saved, is continuing to save you, and will one day finally save you in eternity. Um, we, we refer often to these three different things in different ways, but, but really it's all salvation. We call them salvation, sanctification, and glorification, and rightfully so. But they, they, through the work of the Spirit, being saved from the power of sin, the world, the flesh, and the devil, 
even now as we speak, and you will one day be finally glorified and saved never to worry about sin, the world, the flesh, or the devil. I'm arguing that Christ purchased all of that. Not just your final salvation, but He purchased it all. He purchased not only your, 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 your past, I'm saved, but He's purchased your sanctification that He's working in you and that one day He will finally save you. I'm convinced that if salvation was not secured, then salvation was not purchased. That's what I'm convinced of. And if perseverance is not a portion of, that Christ, of what Christ purchased, then it's not really salvation at all. John Bunyan, that great uh, Puritan who wrote Pilgrim's Progress and spent much of his life in prison, says this, to be saved is to be preserved in faith to the end. Perseverance is absolutely necessary to the complete saving of the soul. He that goeth to sea with a purpose to arrive at Spain cannot arrive there if he be drowned by the way. Wherefore, perseverance is absolutely necessary for the saving of the soul. If you purchase a ticket for us to go to Spain, Bunyan argues, but if we die along the way and never arrive at our proper destination, was the trip ever secured at all? And he argues, no. No. Our confession um, says almost the exact same thing. It says, those whom God has accepted in the beloved, effectually called and sanctified, can neither totally nor finally fall from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and eternally saved, seeing the gifts and calling of God are without repentance from which source He still begets and nourishes them in faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the Spirit unto immortality. And through many storms and floods arise, though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, yet they, fall, they shall never, fall, never be able to fall uh, finally, to take them off of that foundation and rock by which they are fastened upon. Um, that's the idea. What is impossible to totally or finally... Um, fall away, that we will be kept. But I guess the question is, is how will we be kept? we we'll go to Jeremiah. If you'd like to turn there, I'd love for you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 32. And this will be my argument. Jeremiah chapter number 32. You may remember Jeremiah 31, 31. It's that great promise of the new covenant. Well, several chapters previously as well as several chapters on also have much new covenant language that new covenant which christ would inaugurate in which he would purchase uh, for himself a people who were not a people and he would do things in them in which the old covenant did not and could not do when jeremiah 38 and verse or jeremiah 32 and verse number 38 you read these words they shall be my people and i shall be their god and i will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from them to do good and I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. I will rejoice over them to do them good and will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. End quote. What part of that promise tells us that God's people are secure all the way to the end. I'm going to argue that it's this. I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. That one of the things that God does for us in salvation, and in particularly in the new covenant, that He didn't do in the old covenant is to work in our hearts in such a way that we do not break the covenant that God has and thus cast us off. 
This is what Hebrews is all about. That the new covenant is not like the old covenant in which your fathers spoke of. That in this covenant, Christ purchased with his own blood the salvation of a people, and thus God gives the grace to those people to remain faithful to him, particularly the Spirit of God which dwells up in, dwells in them, as well as the fear of God that correlates with that. You know? And let's just stop talking about it abstractly or theologically. Let's talk about it personally. I know people. You hear about them all the time. Not only do you hear about them all the time, these great men of God that we uh, uphold and esteem who have abandoned the faith and they committed adultery and they've ran amok with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But even in my own life, I spiritually grew up with a man who today has abandoned the faith. You know? A preacher just like myself, a young man just like myself, um, at times probably a better preacher than I am. And I have to think about why. I ask myself that question all the time. Why, Lord? Why me and not him? It's not because I'm smarter. It's not because I'm more intelligent. Um, it's not because I'm more humble. It's not because I'm a better preacher. It's not because I'm a better pastor. It's not because um, I'm, I'm anything of anything, anything greater than him. So why does he leave and I don't? You know? Why do people go and you stay? Why do people abandon the faith that you persevere? Why? Because God put a fear of Him in me. That's clearly not in Him. God put something in me. And I pray something in you. Along with the love and the grace and the compassion. Also a holy fear to respect and reverence a holy God. Salvation doesn't create perfect people in the ultimate sense here in this life. And we know that, right? I mean, how many of us have ever backslidden? You know, that's a good old country term, backslidden. And the reality is, is that's all of us, if we're honest. One question would be is, is was my sin any greater than his sin? And the, and the answer is no. Like, I don't understand it. Like from a practical, personal level. Like, I don't get it. You know, because we're all sinners. We know that we have this inevitable problem that, that we don't love God like we should. You know? We, we know that we have these inclinations toward sin and toward the world. And, and by the end of the day, I, uh, you, you can mark down the sins of my life because, because at the end of the day, if I've done everything right externally, um, I can almost guarantee that I've not loved God like I ought to. Not with every part of my soul, my strength, my body, my mind, you know? Like we know that, that we have a natural part with a propensity towards rebellion against God and, it's, and rear its ugly head on occasion. We know that if we could lose our salvation, we would lose our salvation. So why don't we? Because not only do you know that, how you are, but God knows as well. God knows all about you and me. God knows about our struggles. He knows about our sins. He knows about our doubts. He knows about our fears. He knows about our propensity to abandon Him, prone to, uh, to leave Him, the, the God I love. Um, the hymn writer says, Thus, he says, I put my fear, the fear of me in your heart. He says, listen, 
If you sin, I'll convict you. If you stray, I'll bring you back. If you wander, I'll find you. If you drift away, I'll rescue you. How many times? As many as it takes. How long, O Lord, until the end? You will endure to the end because He will endure with you to the end. I mean, how many of us know that, that if it was not for that kind of grace, we would have jumped ship a long time ago? Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Thus we sing, take my heart, O Lord, and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. You look in your life, and, or maybe you don't. I look in my life, and I look at other people's lives, and I see things, and I see tragedy, and I see trials, and I see pressure that should kill them. And I see pressure that does, does kill some. I see sin that is just so seemingly great that you think, man, there's no way that person's a Christian. And yet God keeps them. And God brings them out on, uh, on the other side, the other end, stronger in some sense than before. Marred and scarred from the sin that they've committed, but, but stronger nonetheless in their inner men because God was with them. And He used it in their life to make them more like Himself. And then you have people who, who seem to be zealous, evangelistic, strongest Christians in the faith that you've ever met. Two years down the road, because of the love of the world, because of laziness or neglect, because of doctrinal issues that they want to chase, doctrines of demons, and because of this or that, man, they just abandon the faith. And you have to wonder why. Because I'm not better than that person. That if God keeps us, it simply keeps us because He's gracious. And the thing that keeps us standing tall, the, key, the thing that keeps us persevering is simply the grace of God. Salvation in life is hard. It's difficult. When we talk about perseverance, we aren't talking about a constant unscathing victory in this life. You know, We're not talking about the ultimate delivery from sin here and now and you have a, a worldwide ministry that just brings droves into the family of God with little opposition. You know, some great warrior for Christ in which you, you've conquered every battle and you stand up on this mountain as if you conquered it all. That's not perseverance. At least not for the average Christian, not for the average man or woman. No, perseverance is something altogether different. It may be that on some days. It may be victorious. It may be winning battles. But on most days, it's waking up and going to battle against your sin. The world. The flesh. The devil. And Jesus sustaining you in it by faith. Through faith. Not apart from faith. It's not in a vacuum. God just doesn't save you and, and, and it births you into the family of God and just legally says you're free, do what you want. No, He saves you and He saves you and you persevere, you're kept through faith. That's what 1 Peter 1.5 said when we read it just a few moments ago, wasn't it? It's not kept by the power of God regardless of faith. He says that you're kept by the power of God through faith. That the reason you make it is because God by His power keeps you in such a way that your faith is sustained all the way to the end. How does He do that? <clears throat> he, does that he does that by the, by the work of Christ. By the intercessory work of Christ. You know? Peter, uh, Peter is, is always a help to me and a comfort in times like these. <laughs> you know? Hot-headed as much as he was, man, Christ loved him, didn't he? I mean, as much as he would open his mouth and stick a foot in it, I mean, Christ was just always gracious to him. Sometimes it was hard, but, but sometimes men need hard words and harshness from an authority figure. 
You read Luke 22 and, and you read um, the, that, great, um, that great instance in which um, the, Jesus himself looks at the Apostle Peter and says, Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to sift thee. But Satan wants you, Peter. He wants to put you in a sieve and he's going to. What happens when you put someone or wheat in a sieve? You, you separate the parts. Satan, Peter, says, well, I take it. Peter, uh, Satan wants to take you, throw you in a sieve, and separate you from your faith. Pry you away from it. He'll do everything that he can. Now, you're not as powerful as he is. You're not as strong as he is. And Peter stands up and is just, he's arrogant, and he says, no, no, Lord, I will never, I will never renounce the faith. I will never deny you. And then, our Lord looks at him and says, once you've returned, go and strengthen your brethren. Can you imagine going toe-to-toe with the devil? Every one of us would be consumed apart from Christ. But Christ prays for him. He says, but I have prayed for thee, Peter. Christ's intercessory prayer to keep us are not always intercessory prayers to keep us from temptation. For undeniable victory or undeniable victory over the devil, or to keep us from even from falling. Jesus' prayers are to keep us from are you totally falling? And in Christ's prayer is a prayer that I believe the Father honors because he prays according to the will of God. It's interesting, isn't it? That sometimes it's those who fall that strengthen our faith, even to the point that. Through what we've learned, we can now even strengthen others. Isn't that amazing? That it's there where you learn to stand and fight. It's there where you learn repentance and faith. It's there where you learn to be um, strengthened to the point that you can learn to never do that sin again. It's there that you can learn of God's grace and His forgiveness. It's there that you can meet with Christ. It's there where you feel His presence. It's there where grace and forgiveness and reconciliation are offered to you and it strengthens your faith. One of the means that God uses to strengthen our faith and even display His character to the world and to the nations is by allowing us to fall. It strengthens us as we run to Christ. It displays the grace and forgiveness and patience and perseverance. You know, Peter goes on after verse number 5 where he talks about being kept through faith. And this is what he says in verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice. What, Peter? Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to the praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see Him, yet believing you rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And Peter understood that. Right? The very writer of that was the man who stood before Christ and denied Him three times. Peter understood what it was like to weep bitterly over his sin. Peter understood what it was like to deny the Lord Jesus in the face of opposition. And in that moment, you probably would have thought, he's done. That guy's not a believer. I mean, how could he be? You look at David's life and you wonder, how in the world on the, on the rooftop with Bathsheba, that guy's not a believer at all. But God sustains him. God uses men to come along, particularly Nathan, in that, in that, in that instance to rebuke him. Why? Because his heart, his, his heart was hardened to the deceitfulness of sin. 
And I think that that's the application in Hebrews 3, particularly on that portion as he says, encourage one another daily. Why? Because, because if you are deceived by the deceitfulness of sin, then you don't understand or know that you're in the sin. Thus you need someone else to come along and to provoke you. That's exactly what happened in Peter's life. After he denies the Lord three times, one of the gospel writers says, Jesus walks by and looks at him. And that's all it took was a look from Christ to bring him to his knees and he wept bitterly. Peter understood what it was like But God delivers him in that moment. A promise of preservation through the intercessory work of Christ. A promise to keep him through it. And to keep him even by it. Even the tribulation. Not only that he was kept through the tribulation, but he was kept by the tribulation, by the persecution, even by the sin. That that, that it is that tribulation that strengthens him such and strengthens us such that he can and we can strengthen the brethren. Isn't that amazing? Like James 1 says this, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations or various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You know, Romans 5 says, it says, But we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given us. What we have here is the preservation and the perseverance of the saints. We have an economy that God has created in the new covenant in which you cannot fall away. Not finally. Not because you're perfect and not because you're sinless. Not because you're great and not because you're wise. And not because you're simply the the, the best Christian that's ever lived. But because Christ has promised Himself to you in such a way that He will never leave you nor forsake you. So when you do have a victory, He's there. Also, when you sin, guess what? He's there. When you're down and discouraged and depressed and you want to throw in the towel, He's there. He's the paraclete. He's the advocate with the Father. He's the one who comes alongside and He's the one that convicts and restores and strengthens. Listen, this is the amazing reality of it all. We'll conclude. That if the devil has temptation as his tool and the world has tribulation as its agent to stifle our faith, then they have nothing because even that ultimately pushes us on to Jesus Christ. What tools do they have to rip you out of the hand of Christ? You know, I remember studying through Romans chapter 8, and I've told you many, uh, many of you this um, time and time again, that you see the Spirit at work in Romans chapter number 8 in salvation and in sanctification and, and ultimately in glorification. And the conclusion at the end of Romans chapter number 8 is, is that you can never separate us from the love of God. I don't care if you're a, a demon. I don't care if you're a devil. I don't care if you're a world power. I don't care if you're this or that. There's no height nor depth nor breadth nor width or anything that could ever separate us from the love of God. Why? Because if He gave us freely His own Son, how shall He not freely give us all things? And what you find is that there is this hope that is born within the people of God through the agency of the Spirit of God in which when you don't know how to pray, the Spirit actually prays for you. You find in Hebrews that that you have an advocate um, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who's at His right hand, interceding for you even now, such that when you fail and such that when you fall and such that even when you sin... Um, Christ meets you there with a, with, a, with a disciplinary loving hand of an almighty God to bring to correct you and to bring you back and to strengthen your faith such that you never do it again. You know, we read of David 
um, sinning in a great sin and multiple great sins. And we don't read of it later. We see Peter strengthened in his faith such that, that now he's standing to preach the gospel to the ages, to the entire world in some sense, as he stands before his brethren um, under whom every nation is represented there. It doesn't mean he's perfect and it doesn't mean that his faith, um, that he's sinless. But it does mean that God used even the bad things in his life to, for, the, for the ultimate and purposes of God. That's Romans chapter 8 and 28, right? And then he'll work everything, he'll work it all together for good. Not that it's all good. Not, not, not standing up here today licensing sin. I'm not standing up here today saying that it's okay to do that and do that. Uh, Romans chapter 6, uh, that's what people concluded with Paul. You know, are you saying that, 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 that grace abounds with sin, so let's sin all the more? God forbid, he says. No, 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 no. That, that, that is not what I said at all. But at the same time, we recognize that the world's attempt to destroy us and our flesh's attempt to destroy us and the devil's attempt to destroy us could never prevail because God uses those things in the life of a believer. The fear of God lives within. The Spirit of God lives within in such a way that whenever it encounters those things, God meets with us and brings us to and through those things. That, 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 that your faith is actually strengthened in persecution. Your faith is actually strengthened oftentimes in tribulation. That's why I said that, that, that God not only keeps you through persecution, but God keeps you by persecution. That that's the refining fire. That that's what makes you more like the sun. That when, when, when you, um, in the midst of, of disobedience and trial and tribulation and persecution, opposition from the world, um, God, God aids you to prevail by His Spirit and total dependency upon Him. And you come out saying, man, what a God. And He makes you more like Himself. He gives you more grace as you experience more grace. Um, he gives you more, 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 more compassion. As, he makes you more compassion as you, you, you experience the compassionate nature of God. He makes you more holy. That's what Peter's going to go on and say in that same chapter later. Therefore be ye holy for he is holy. You say that I have a license to sin. Not if you have the fear of God in your heart, you don't. Because what will happen is, is that if you're not totally a dead conscience and, deceit, and heart and heart by the deceitfulness of sin, that God will, will rebuke you. You'll learn what it is to know the holiness of God. You'll learn what it is to know is that, that, that great attribute of the, of the reverent hand of God. That's what many Old Testament writers encountered. Do you have some guarantee that you won't blow it? No, that's not what I'm arguing. That he'll keep you from sinning grievously? No, that's not what I'm arguing. That you're not going to struggle with sin throughout your life? No, that's not what I'm arguing. What I am arguing, though, is that he guarantees that he will sustain your faith in such a way that even when you stumble and fall, persecution comes at your doorstep at its strongest. The devil's working to sift you like wheat to separate you from your faith. That the work of Christ on the cross and his present intercessory work as an advocate with the Father and your high, faithful high priest, that he will pick you up and bring you back to God and he will make you stronger as a result of it through faith and repentance. That is what I'm saying. That in some sense, when you think about Peter's offense, it's really not worse than Judas, is it? They both betray him. What was the difference? Judas had a worldly sorrow that led to death. Peter had a godly sorrow that led to life. I don't know. 
I don't think that Judas was that much worse of a Christian follower or a follower of Christ. I don't see anywhere in the Gospels where um, the disciples are looking around being like, watch out for that guy. You know, we went on a preaching campaign and he's just not like you know, the other guys. I mean, we were out there casting out demons and, and this guy, he just, he just couldn't you know, hold the line like the rest of us. Our Lord reveals, is about to reveal whom will betray him. And, and everyone's looking around in the mirror saying, is it me? Is it me? None of them point the finger at Judas, you know? I'm not up here saying that anybody is better than anybody. I'm saying that if anybody gets in, it's totally by the grace of God. And if anybody makes it to the end, it's all of grace. It's only because Christ kept you. That if you are going to be saved, it will only be by the gracious hand of God keeping you. Thus you are to remain faithful to the end. How will you remain faithful to the end? You're saying, I can't persevere in my own strength, but I will persevere. How do I remain faithful to the end? By persevering. Why will you persevere? Because when God saved you, He put it in your heart too. As well as a hundred other graces. I love J.C. Ryle. Let me give you a quote and we'll almost be done. He says this, What kind of head would he be if any of his members of his body could be torn from him? What kind of shepherd would he be if a single sheep of his flock was left behind in the wilderness? What kind of physician would he be if any patient under his hand were at length found incurable? What kind of high priest would he be if any name once written on his heart were found wanting once he makes up his jewels? What kind of husband would he be if any soul once united to him by faith were put asunder? This is the confidence that we have in God, that He is the one working in me, that I will persevere because the hand of my God will preserve me. That is vital for you and I to understand that if we will persevere today, that that's how we persevere. We persevere by heeding the warnings because they're for us. But they're not for us in a sense to look back and question whether or not we're, we're saved or not. But it is to keep us running towards the prize of final salvation. And then we have the divine promises, which are immeasurable. And we say, God's going to keep us. Therefore, we must, God's preserving us. Therefore, we must persevere. You say, I don't understand that. I don't either. I don't either. I don't understand how in Jude... I think it's verse number 22 or 23. He says, keep yourself in the love of God. And then a couple verses later, he says, now to the one who is able to keep you, talking about the Lord. I don't understand in Philippians chapter number two, where he says that to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And it is of him to, to will and to do of his good pleasure in you. You know, I don't understand where Paul says, I live yet not I, Christ lives in me. If there's this sense in which God has, has, has worked and God has purposed and God has, has done, yet at the same time, He uses means to accomplish that end and He puts things in us and, 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 and He puts Himself in us so that we will continue on to the end. So, so God working and willing in you is you working out your salvation. But it wouldn't happen unless He, he did a, a, a permanent work in you in the beginning of salvation, that gift of the Spirit, that comforter, that, that you are to keep yourself in the love of God. You are to persevere. But it's Him who keeps you. It's Him. Because on our best day and our most righteous activity, um, the, the reality is, is that we'll never, we'll never achieve to the status of, of, of earning salvation or being worthy of being preserved. Not only that, he's built an entire divine economy in which the midst of the wicked and perverse world uh, that we are to build and strengthen our faith. And we'll talk about that next week. 
This economy consists of means, means to accomplish that end, means to strengthen your faith, like the Word of God and like prayer and the people of God and the community of faith and, and probably a hundred other things that we just don't have time to talk about. So what are we saying here? We're saying that Mark 13, Matthew 24, Luke 21, as well as so many other passages of Scripture, that we have here an exhortation for the Christian to persevere to the end and thus be saved. Only those that persevere receive salvation. But it's on the basis, it's not on the basis of their faithfulness. That their faithfulness is the gracious fruit of salvation that Christ purchased for them on the cross and gave them in the Holy Spirit as a seal and sign of his covenant with them. And the Lord uses many means to strengthen the faith, both divine promises as well as fatal threats. And both are gracious means designed to keep us running the race to the end. There were those that persevered to the end. In that time, and there are now, and they did it only by the gracious work of Christ. And you too are to persevere. You're to be humble. You're to push on. You're to be totally dependent upon the Lord. You're to be humble. You're not to rely upon past experiences like Judas may have. But you're to rely now on the present grace of God um, to endure. Yes, God will preserve you if you're His. But from the human perspective, you know what that looks like? It looks like run. It looks like run, men, run. It looks like fight. It looks like battle. It looks like kill sin in your life. It looks like guard your heart. It looks like nourish your soul. It looks like desire the sincere milk of the word. It looks like encourage one another. It looks like cling to the body. It looks like endure the pain for Christ's sake. It looks like believe in God. Take refuge in Him and in the midst of a wicked and a perverse world. So be humble. Rest in Christ today and His complete work and trust that He is able to keep you. And I'm not here today to make you question your salvation at all. Some of you are thinking, maybe I am. I'm no better than Demas. I can tell you that right now. I'm no better than Hymenaeus and Alexander or Philetus. I'm no better than my buddy from ages past. You know, the beginning of ministry. I'm no better so I'm not looking at myself today. I will not look at myself. The question of your salvation is not inherent to, to look at your, is if you're looking at yourself, seeing whether or not you're saved. The question of whether or not you're saved today is are you looking to Christ? Are you looking to Christ today? Are you totally dependent upon Him? Are you running the race out of gratitude of heart? Are you running the race to fight the battle? Are you running for Him? Because what we can do is we can spend too much time looking in the mirror um, thinking, oh, what a worm is I, thinking, man, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm spiritual and humble. <laughs> uh, and the reality is, is no, you're prideful and you're arrogant and you're deceiving yourself. That humility, yes, it's, um, it cries out to God because of sin. It repents over it. But part of repentance is looking away from yourself, church, and looking to Christ as your only hope, persevering, simply because of Him. And I pray that that's you today. Um, if it's not, I beg you to trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Not only do I beg you, but God commands you. He loves you. In some measure greater than we'll, never, than we'll ever understand, it's inexhaustible. His grace and His mercy. And He commands you this day to repent and to believe and to come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, 
and I'll give you rest. Because the reality is, is there's a coming a day of a reckoning of all men in which they'll give an account of every thought, word, action, or deed before a holy God. He will pull out the deepest recesses of your soul, things you never told to your spouse, and the, uh, and the great secrets of, of the inner man and woman. You'll stand trial that day, and you won't stand for long. But there'll be a whole multitude out of every nation, tribe, and tongue in which the grace of God was extended to them in Christ who will stand because they stand in Him. And I beg you to be part of that company today that, 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 that the gospel is, is, is there for you to repent and to believe, to recognize your sin and to turn. Not to, not to revel in it and not to, 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 to waffle around in it all day long thinking, woe is me, I'm not good enough. None of us are. There ain't one of us here that deserves Jesus Christ or the love that is expressed on, on behalf of sinners like us. There ain't one of us that if it was left up to us could make it to heaven and earn anything. You know, God didn't look down at, the, at mankind one day and say, Damon's a pretty good guy. Like, I'm going to pick him because he's going to do great things for the kingdom. No, he picked out a wretched sinner who was rebellious, who loved himself, and he saved him by his grace. And that's it. And that's your story if you're saved, and that's my story. God chooses the weak, He chooses the foolish, He chooses the little things, and He does things with them that are supernatural and out of this world and eternal. And that's all He wants, you know? You know? Uh, one of the great Puritans said, the only thing I ever contributed to my salvation was my sin. And that's the truth. That's the truth. We have a gracious Savior today. And if you're without Him, I beg you to come. I beg you to come. And if you're in Him, <laughs> glory in Christ today, friends. Um, because... Even on your best day, when you would abandon him, he'll never abandon you because he's made a new covenant with you in which will prevail not only in this age, but in the age to come. Let's, let's pray. Father, we love and praise you and thank you for the privilege it is just to talk about you. Father, to proclaim your word. Father, it's, um, it's a hard thing to think about. During that time, all that abandoned the faith. But that seems to be what we would expect with us. The amazing thing is, is that you kept some to the end. <laughs> you kept them by your grace. And Father, in that we revel and we glory because we trust if you did it with them and you kept your promise, Father, throughout the ages, then you'll do it with us as well. God, you will keep us to the end. So help us run. God, help us persevere. Father, help us on our most tired and exhausted days. Come to us. Encourage our souls. Feed us with the Word of God. Revive it in our hearts. Make it known to us, Father, that you love us. Show us Christ and all of his glory, Father, so that, you'll, so that we'll remember that, that amazing grace. God, and instill in us a power to take the gospel to the nations. God, help us to rise up on behalf of the authority of Christ and pierce the world with darkness. Um, Father, because this is your will and this is what Christ came to accomplish, Father, and the power of the Spirit is unparalleled and incomparable um, to any, um, any tyrant, any um, tyrannical authority, any government of, of the world, any devil, any demon, any any man who rises up, any woman, any family, any organization, put them all in a pot and, and weigh them out and the, and, the, and the power of God reigns forevermore. And I know that's true, Father, because you've saved me and you keep me.
And um, and one day you will. What a glory and what a, what a blessing it is to know that all that though all of hell, the world, the flesh, and the devil come against us, it can only make us love you more. It can only we'll only know you more, Father. What a blessing it is to know that when I'm wondering, you'll come after me. And oh, how often you've done that, and how often I've disobeyed and not thanking you for it. So thank you, Lord. I pray that that's the, I pray that's a reality for the people under the sound of my voice. Now, it wasn't the most eloquent sermon, and I'm fine with that. I just pray that you'll use fallible things today, and you'll do infallible things with them. God, that you'll save our children, that you'll work in our hearts, Father, that you'll give us a greater love for you because of the love that you've extended to us. Father, we need you to do this work because we cannot do it ourselves. So, Father, go with us and make yourself known, displaying your character upon this people. God, it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.